the book of Proverbs warns us against people who, like the glaze covering an earthen vessel, possess fervent lips with an evil heart, Proverbs 6, 23. Now, rarely do false teachers get on stage and announce boldly, believe this heresy or do this sin. The seduction of false teaching comes from the subtle prodding of our sinful desires. False teachers come draped with the pretense of love and compassion and the fulfillment of your every dream and desire. But behind this is a very nefarious and dark motivation. Right? Behind every narcissistic celebrity in Hollywood lies a drove of zealous fans who feed their ego, who think they can do no wrong. And in a similar way, every false teacher has a crowd of people who are seduced by him to follow. How do they keep getting away with it? Well, people keep feeding them. People keep being seduced and deceived by these false teachers. And Jesus has strong words for people who lead astray his flock. He says, it would be better for you to tie a boulder around your neck and plunge into the sea and drown than to lead people away from the truth. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter gives a profile of the kind of false teacher that we should expect to find emerging from the church. Someone consumed with greed, their own lusts, who are deceptive, using false words to exploit people. People who are very secretive, people who are using soft words to uh, condemn people and to bring people into error. This is something that we have to be aware of today as much as the early church had to be aware of in the first century. We have to be aware of soft and pleasant words that deceive, that draw people away from Christ. Their judgment will be swift. This is Understanding Second Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter gives a true testimony in written words to combat the false teaching that has emerged within the church. These false teachers exploit Christians to satisfy their sinful desires by using false words. And in light of this, Peter warns the church that these false teachers will bring upon themselves judgment, which is ironic because the judgment of God that comes with the return of Christ is the very doctrine that these false teachers deny. And Peter's warning is very stern. Do not follow them on their path to destruction, just as Noah and Lot evaded God's judgment by distancing themselves from the wicked, so too those who turn from these false teachers will avoid the final wrath and judgment of God. So we're going to see a few things happening where Peter sketches out a profile about what it means for us to discern who are false teachers and to kind of discern the motivations and the techniques that they use to deceive the people of God. Let's look at these first couple verses in chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. 
The false teachers in the church denied the promise of Christ's return to judge the living and the dead. And Peter responds to this false teaching by citing three examples of God judging the wicked and preserving the righteous. His first example, the sinful angels that God casts into hell to await final judgment. This refers to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, in which fallen angels procreate with women to produce the race of giants referred to as the Nephilim. God judged these fallen angels by keeping them chained in hell. Now, Peter does not use the common Greek word for hell, Gehenna, but rather Tartarus, a word that refers to the underworld in Greek mythology. Perhaps God keeps these fallen angels in a kind of underworld until they get cast into a lake of fire in the final judgment. Or perhaps God keeps these fallen angels bound from interfering with the world until the last day. Whatever the response or whatever the way in which God is judging, we know that God does in fact judge. God does in fact take note of the sins of the wicked, and he holds them accountable to it. He brings judgment upon their sinful and predatory actions. Peter continues to illustrate his point by citing the flood when he talks about how God flooded the wicked ancient world in his wrath, and yet he preserved Noah and his family through the ark. And then he claims that Noah served as a herald or preacher of righteousness. Now, if you flip back to the book of Genesis and you try to find out a sermon from Noah, you're not going to find it. Well, what did Noah preach? Well, it looks like this is insinuating that Noah was telling the people in the world, if you want to escape judgment, if you want to escape the flood, get in the ark, get in the boat. And that's the essence of the apostolic preaching of the gospel. If you want to escape the judgment of God, Repent and believe. Get in the boat of Christ. You will avoid the judgment of God if you are found in Christ. And now the final example comes from Genesis 19, in which Lot shows hospitality to two angels in his home outside the wicked city of Sodom. And then men from Sodom see the angels and demand to sleep with them, which brings about the wrath of God upon the whole city in the form of fire and sulfur. This is an inversion of Genesis 6. These men from Sodom lust after angels and transgress boundaries set by God. God preserves Lot from the destruction because despite his many character flaws, which you find out later on in the Genesis narrative, he possessed enough righteousness to abhor the sin of the men of Sodom. He possessed enough wherewithal to get out of the city to run away from the judgment of God, away from the wicked, and he was preserved. In a sense, God sets the bar low. Compared to the people of Sodom, Lot is a righteous man, right? But he's clearly got sinful tendencies. Again, later on, we see more of those play themselves out. But it goes to show that God's mercy condescends. He's saying, look, as long as you heed my call to turn from the wicked you don't have to be perfect. You just have to hear my message, believe it, and then act on it. And that is the message to all sinners everywhere. You can turn from your sin, trust in Christ. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to hear his words, believe them, and then act on them. Now, what common thread ties these three examples together? God's judgment condemns the wicked and preserves the righteous. Therefore, the church must not listen to false teachers, for they too will suffer the fate of the fallen angels. They will encounter the flood of God's wrath on the last day. They will receive the punishment of fire and sulfur that Sodom experienced. They are denying the final judgment of God. They are denying the return of Christ. But these Old Testament references show that God does, in fact, hold the wicked to account, that they are fools for denying this, and that the church must not be swindled and follow them on their path to destruction. Peter moves on from allusions to the Old Testament to direct descriptions of the kind of false teachers Christians must avoid. That's verses 10 to 16. 
Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though great in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness." False teachers mark themselves out by their bold and willful disregard for the truth. Now here it says that they blaspheme the glorious ones, and that likely refers to fallen angels. If you read in Jude 8 and 9, it says, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Jude alludes to a story told in the non-canonical book of Enoch, which depicts a dispute between the archangel Michael and the devil. There's a lot to unpack there, but don't lose the main point. Michael refused to pronounce judgment on the devil, but left it up to the Lord. He respected the spiritual realm, and he respected the authority of God. These false teachers, by contrast, seem to not believe in evil powers. They mock and blaspheme evil angels because they act irrationally like beasts. They may not believe in the spiritual realm. If they're denying the final judgment of God, they're not going to believe that God judges angels. They're probably not going to believe that there are fallen angels. So there might be something going on here. They are so ignorant, so blasphemous, that even they, that even the, the, the fallen angels receive no respect from them. They have no understanding, no spiritual vision. They blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant. Now, regardless of how you interpret glorious ones, we see the motivation of these false teachers with clarity. They sin boldly in the daytime rather than concealing their wickedness at night. They deceive people by targeting unsteady souls. They look to commit sexual sin with eyes filled with adultery or literally adulterous eyes. Their appetite for sin is insatiable and they do everything to satisfy their greed. Now, this reference to greed links the false teachers to the narrative of Balaam in Numbers 22. Balaam is a pagan prophet who gets recruited to curse Israel for money. He's greedy. He represents the greedy false teacher seeking to harm God's people. But his irrationality gets revealed when the donkey he rides sees an angel blocking the road and stops. The donkey possesses greater spiritual perception than Balaam. Balaam's blindness serves as a template for the blindness of the false teachers. They are less than beasts. They are fools because they are consumed by their sinful desires. They are the blind leading the blind, and they lead them particularly with false promises. And that's in the next little section, verses 17 to 22. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow 
in the mire. False teachers give false promises. One goes to a spring to find water, but finds dirt. One follows a mist for hydration, only for a storm to blow it away. These false teachers bring upon themselves the same gloomy judgment of the fallen angels because they boast of their sin, and they target those who are barely escaping from those who live in error, which is likely a reference to young Christians. They look for those who are unsteady, who are unmoored from their faith, who are very weak in their faith, and they provoke them. They appeal to their sensuality. They try to draw these young Christians away. They look for Christians who are very weak and easy to be exploited. Sensual passions refers to allowing sinful desires to direct our lives, and it often centers around sexual immorality. They promise freedom, but they themselves live enslaved to their own desires. And our modern age exemplifies this. I mean, the world promises sexual freedom by expressing every kind of perverse desire. Yet all that freedom does is turn us into slaves of pleasure and novelty. Think about cult leaders. I mean, usually when there's a cult leader, money and sex are involved. Cult leaders, like false teachers, know about our proclivity to be drawn in by materialism, by wealth, by status, by sexual pleasure, by freedom, by rebelling against the authority of God. And they press in on that point and they say, you can have Christ and you can have this quote-unquote freedom, this sexual freedom, this sexual license, all the novelty and pleasures that you want. But in reality, they are the blind leading the blind. They revel in the defilements of the world that they have claimed to to escape from. And that's the key word. They claim to have escaped from the defilement of the world, but they are still defiled in themselves. They are still filled with perverse desire. They revel in their defilement, but in reality, they're showing their slavery, right? Freedom and liberation from God is slavery to sin. But liberation from sin is slavery to God. It is becoming consumed by God. It is becoming someone who's obedient now to the standards of God, not to our own pleasures. And these false teachers, again, they claim Christianity, right? They claim they no longer belong to this defiled world, but their actions prove otherwise. They're like a dog returning to vomit or a pig that jumps into mud after a bath. They deny the gospel with their lives. They deny their profession. I think Peter is not talking about losing your salvation. He's talking experientially about the fact that we do see people turn away from the faith, and it reveals that they never were converted in the first place. But it still is a turning away. They are turning away from what they profess. They are proclaiming to be part of the church, but by their actions and by their denial of the truth are revealing that they have not been changed at a heart level. And he basically says, Peter says, turning away from Christ is worse than refusing to accept him in the first place. What a sober warning, right? Don't turn from the faith. Your second state will be worse than the first. Why would you bathe yourself and clean yourself and then jump back into the mud? And notice in the proverb, the dog remains a dog all throughout. It's not like the dog becomes a different animal and then transforms back into a dog. In, in, in the same way, it's not like a non-believer becomes a Christian and then becomes a non-Christian again, but the whole time he was a dog, the whole time he was a non-believer. And this should give us a, a sense of self-awareness that there will be people that seem like genuine Christians, but time will bear out the truth. It's kind of like the parable of the sowers. When Jesus talks about different kinds of seeds, some of them immediately are taken away. Some of them blossom a little bit, but get burnt up by the sun. And some of them get choked out by the weeds. And it takes time to see what will happen. It takes time to see the fruit of the gospel take root and to see if there really is a root behind their lives. And we must hold fast to the true confession. One of the things that Peter's saying is if you're worried that this is you, don't turn to false teaching. Don't do it. Don't turn away from Christ. 
right? God promises to preserve us from these false teachers, but we do that through the means of holding fast to his word, holding fast to the true confession. And Peter does not take apostasy lightly, and neither should we. He does not coddle false teachers, and neither should we. He calls them beasts. God's judgment is sure, and he warns them about it, and he will bring to justice those who attempt to mislead his people. And we as a church must ensure that when he comes, he finds us like righteous Lot and Noah, far from evil and close to righteousness. 